So we're in uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, not 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We went all the way through 1 Corinthians. It only took us about a year. Yeah. <laughs> but it was good. I'm glad you think it was good. I like teaching it. I'm glad there's people that want to listen. So now we're in 2 Corinthians, and we've been in this for about, I don't know, six weeks or so. And uh, so we're going to start in verse 15 tonight, but I'm going to jump up to verse 12 to get us in context and I'm going to read all the way through chapter 2, verse 4. Remember, originally, there, was, there were not uh, chapter and verse divisions. This is a letter uh, to the church at Corinth, and the Apostle Paul simply wrote the letter. Now, bear in mind, when I say the Apostle Paul wrote the letter, he wasn't sitting down writing a letter, or you would type a letter, right? Does anybody write anymore? Do you write a letter? Do you write cards anymore? I know I get cards from you, so occasionally. But I think most of the time, don't we all just kind of like send emails and texts and all that sort of thing? So <clears throat> what these guys did, what really pretty much all of these writers did is they had what is known as an amanuensis. Can you say that? which is like a secretary. And so they would dictate, they would speak the letter, they would speak the, what we call the text, and that person would write. So they had to be, there was, you know, there was no shorthand. So they had to be pretty on the ball, right? This also explains, um, I think, differences that you find among letters by the same author um, because perhaps that amanuensis was, you know, at times, depending on the, the, the writer, going through and cleaning up some things or adjusting some things or, uh, and I, you know, that probably fools with some people's idea of what uh, inspiration is. There are those that believe in a theory of, inspiration um, called manual dictation. Well, I mean, this doesn't really work too well when you consider that it's rather obvious that amanuenses were used. Manual dictation would mean that the human writer basically just kind of, you know, is like a typewriter and God is just using them, Right. But that's not the way it works, okay? That's not the way it works with preaching and even something as important uh, as uh, the Scripture. It's not what works. Uh, it's not how it works that way either. Um, God inspires the author, and it's filtered through the personality and the vocabulary of that particular author. That's why if we zero in and we get too close to the words we can run into problems. Um, and this is going to make me heretical in some people's estimation of uh, God's inspired word. Um, but it is God's inspired message. It's the word of God. And the words are important in the text. I'm not saying that. But um, we have manuscripts of uh, these letters that are very early. These manuscripts go back very early. 
but we have no original autographs. That means we don't have the original 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote. We have copies. Now, there are multiple copies, so you can compare them to see whether they were all copying from the same thing. So, for instance, if, uh, if I shared the Constitution of the United States of America, okay, or the Declaration of Independence. Now, we have the original autographs of those. Um, the Declaration has always been under this uh, glass case um, in Washington, D.C., but it's been there for so long that the text is just really, really uh, degraded. It's very, very light. It's hard to read. But we have so many copies of it that you can compare the copies to each other, and then you can go back and you can look at that autograph and go back and forth. But if I were to put the Constitution up here on the screen, okay, um, and I were to have each of you copy it, some of you might be more careful, others of you might be not as careful, but see, I can compare all of your copies. Does that make sense? And I can, even if I don't have the original, I can look at your copies and say, okay, you know, here's an obvious difference between this person and the other copyists. Or let's say now we have copies of the Constitution, and, and we do, that go back, you know, 100 years, 150 years. So if we have copies that, um, you know, are 150 years ago, they're, you know, 75 years after the fact. And we could, when we would compare those to copies that are made today, and if we saw that the copies from 150 years ago were different than the copies today, which one would we be more likely to trust? Probably the older one, right? Right? Now, that's not necessarily the case. There's, there are lots of uh, factors that go into um, discerning, discovering, understanding, recognizing what the most reliable manuscripts are. But we have so many manuscripts that we can, and I say we, none of us in this room, including me, are competent or capable of applying the scientific methodology that goes into them saying, okay, this is a more reliable. In fact, um, we have Greek, uh, let's say a Greek New Testament. There are two major Greek New Testaments. There's the UBS, the United Bible Societies. And we're at UBS 5 now, I believe, still. So that's the fifth edition of UBS. And what they do is they go through and they say, okay, this is, this is an A, this is a B, this is a C. The A is the most likely, right? The B is somewhat less likely. The C is somewhat unlikely, okay? But they have all these manuscripts and they go through and look at them. And then um, there is Nestle Aland, and I think we might be up to the 28th edition of Nestle Aland now, but all of these are, they're Greek New Testament manuscripts where they've gone back and they've looked at all of the available manuscripts, the earliest ones that are in Greek. There are Greek manuscripts that are all in uh, capitals, the entire, you know, uh, text of the letters that are, or the uh, Gospels in the case of the Gospels, are in 
a continuous string of letters, okay? Um, and so in some of the oldest manuscripts, they are all capital letters. There are no spaces. There's no punctuation. It's just a continuous string of letters. So you got to know your Greek. And the same thing applies to the Hebrew Old Testament. You, Hebrew reads from right to left, right? It goes the opposite direction, but it's the same thing. It's a continuous string of letters, right? And in the oldest version, there's no punctuation. Uh, no punctuation. There are no vowels. Isn't that strange? They simply, they simply understood how to pronounce these words, right? But when it got to the place where nobody was speaking uh, Hebrew anymore, where they were speaking Aramaic, then you have this group of people that came along that are known as the Masoretes, and they added what is, what is known as vowel pointing, right? And so they put the, the vowel sounds in, but they didn't add letters. They added these little dots or dashes above and below the Hebrew letters, so that the person that was reading it or the person that was uh, canting it, right, uh, uh, chanting it, if you will, out loud, would know how to properly pronounce it, right? Um, but that was to save space. They, you know, didn't have an unlimited amount of space with these scrolls. Nonetheless, um, when you get to the New Testament, um, we have all of these different manuscripts that we compare together, and that results in us having the text that we currently have. Well, why did I go into all of that? It's so you will understand that if you get too down and dirty into each letter, each word, and so forth, there are differences between the manuscripts, right? And so if you're going to try to adhere to something like a manual dictation view of inspiration, well, which manuscript do I trust? This is where people like Bart Ehrman, who's a, he's a manuscript expert, but he is not a believer. He does not. He has written multiple books casting dispersion on the Bible. And so if you, if you zoom in too close, then you run into issues, okay? You run into problems because there are many differences. They're all minor but see, if you back away and you look at the, the meaning, right, of the text rather than each individual word, each individual letter, then we have the inspired word of God, the inspired message of God. And with the aid of the Holy Spirit who originally inspired it, then we can come to uh, an understanding of what God is trying to say. So that's why God uses people like me and Pastor Craig um, to look at the text and to present it to you. That's why, as I've said a num number of times in here, um, having multiple translations of Scripture is not a bad thing because none of you and perhaps none of you that are watching, you know, perhaps somebody would watch uh, that has some uh, capability or background, but you don't read Greek. So how are you going to know? This is not written in English. So there are folks that are the, the KJV-only people, right? They're in love with the King James Bible. That's great. It, you know, it's, uh, it's literature. It's been around for a long time. But Paul didn't write 
in King James English. He didn't write in Elizabethan English. He wrote in Koine Greek. So um, contemporary translations, like the one that I'm using, which is a more literal translation, the English Standard Version, or here lately I've been reading the updated version of the New American Standard Bible, um, they rely on, I know it sounds contradictory, but even though they're newer translations, they rely on older manuscripts than the King James because believe it or not, in 1611 and through the numerous revisions of the King James, they didn't have um, uh, access to some of the older manuscripts that we now have access to that have been discovered, right? Well, as I said earlier, you are more likely to rely on a manuscript that is closer to the original autograph than one that is later, all right? So there are uh, certain verses that we would find in the King James that are really only found in very, very late manuscripts. And so that's why in translations like, for instance, the NIV and even the ESV, which is a very literal translation, um, <clears throat> The ending in chapter 16 of Mark is relegated to a footnote. Oh, why is that? Because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. So we want to say, okay, well, here it is, and this is what it says, and perhaps the Lord has inspired this in some way, but this was not originally in Mark. And there are several other verses that are like that. Uh, an interesting example of this <clears throat> is um, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. That's the story of the woman caught in adultery. We're all probably familiar with that story, right? Well, there are scholars that don't believe that that story is authentic, primarily because it is, number one, not originally found in John. And that's why if you pay attention to your Bible, you'll see that it's bracketed, right? And it says the earliest manuscripts don't contain this. But it's there because that story does go back pretty far. Um, there is at least one manuscript where that story is actually found in Luke. So it's obvious that what was going on in the early churches, you had this story about the woman caught in adultery that it seems very authentic. It seems very much like Jesus. But it wasn't found in any of the Gospels, so they didn't know where to put it, right? So at a certain point in time, it landed right there in uh, John, okay? But I will tell you this. It is highly unlikely that John was the inspired author of that story, but I think that it is very probable that it is original and legitimate, right? Um, and reflects something that Jesus said and did. It's just not John. So if I'm teaching verse by verse through John, I'm going to bracket that story and pull it out and say, this is probably not in John. However, I'll teach it because I think that it's um, probably very much Jesus. So why did I go into all this detail before I jump into the text? Because what I want us to do is I want us to understand the, the overall meaning of the text rather than drilling into little individual minuscule 
words and differences and uh, you know, people argue over things that they really don't need to be arguing over. We need to worry about what the overall meaning is, okay? So with that in mind, let's uh, jump into this because I always want us to have that broad understanding rather than just focusing in on a verse and building an entire theology on that. Let's see how it all fits together. Uh, we want to see how it fits together in the original history, right? the historical context, in the theology of the New Testament, the theological context, um, the grammatical context, how do all these words fit together, the canonical context, how does it fit into uh, the Word of God as it has been assembled and given to us, right? You don't have to know all of those terms and understand all that to realize that what we're trying to do is get an understanding of what the overall meaning is as opposed to drilling down into little individual uh, differences here, okay? So with that in mind, we'll back up to verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity, this was the theme of last week, and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that you on the day of our Lord Jesus, uh, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Okay? So we talked about that last week. Now let's jump into verses uh, 15. We'll go down to uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Because I was sure of this, that is that, you know, You know that we're straightforward. You know that what we say is what we mean. And we've written to you without any sort of uh, um, cryptic meaning. Because of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. All right. So remember, if you think of your map, Achaia is down south of Macedonia. And Macedonia is up north of Achaia. This is all in a region that we could call Greece. The Apostle Paul is probably thinking that what's going to happen, he says, um, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. So he's probably thinking that he's going to take a ship across the Aegean and land over near Corinth and then go up to Macedonia, then go back down to Corinth and then take a ship back across into Asia Minor, Right. Um, and have you sent me on my way to Judea? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Boy, this is a lot of people today, right? <laughs> Especially younger people. I, I have a young man that calls me all the time that's, you know, from my ministry in the past, and he'll say, oh, oh Pastor D, I, I got another call. I'll call you back. And I'm like, no, he won't. <laughs> He's not going to call me back. Uh, Pastor D, I, I'm going to come to church this Sunday. And I'm like, yeah, it's unlikely. <laughs> He's just going to say that, you know. With a lot of these young people, they just say stuff, you know. Back in the day, your word's your bond. If you say you're going to be there, you're going to be there, whether nobody's there or everybody's there. I'm going to be here Wednesday. So I'm going to be here whether, do you know, there was a Wednesday night that I came to teach. And nobody showed up. Here? Yep. Not a single person. I have it online. So I just started to teach. 
And then I had a random guy that showed up about 15 minutes late and then left early. I'm telling you, man, it makes you feel so significant, right? It But the thing is, I'm not going to say, well, nobody showed up, so I'm not going to teach. I tell these people online, hey, this is, you know, this is live. It's online. It's available to you. So I don't want to not teach, right? Um, I did not feel good last night. And we have karate club on Tuesday. And I don't know, I, along about... I don't know, afternoon, really. I just didn't feel good. Um, my stomach wasn't feeling good. I had kind of a headache. Man, you don't know how much I wanted to cancel. I really did. I'm like, dude, I don't want to do this. I just really didn't want to do it. But I thought, you know what? I just don't want to disappoint these kids, right? Um, you know, I can teach in such a way that, you know, it's not going to overly tax me and hope, you know, I mean, I had some lower intestinal issues, so I was hoping I wouldn't have to run back and forth to the bathroom. And thankfully, I didn't. I took some Pepto, and so that seemed to uh, take care of that problem. But, you know, it was so much fun. We did not have a huge group. And it varies week to week. I mean, sometimes we'll have a you know, big group of kids and new kids and whatever. And sometimes, like this week, we just have the regulars. So... Uh, I had Pastor Craig and two of his kids. His daughter is in a dance program right now, so she wasn't there. And I had another man that doesn't go to our church, but brings his kids. And then I had another uh, boy, older boy, whose mom is usually here. And uh, But man, it was really, really fun. And so the little boy, the littlest boy, he's five. His name is Shiloh. He always comes up to me and goes, can we spar? He really wants to spar, right? He's got his little gloves. He brings them every week. He wants to fight, okay? And the kid that he normally spars, the kid that's closest to his age, this other kid is six, didn't show up. Now, the last time I sparred those two, buddy, (laughs) it was fun to watch, man. That other kid's probably... Oh, he's a couple inches taller than Shiloh is, and he probably outweighs him by 25 pounds or so. And so he was just busting loose on Shiloh, and Shiloh, you know, got knocked down once. Dude, that kid don't care. He jumped back up, and he got busy and busted loose on that, you know. So but I didn't have that kid, so Shiloh got to spar these older kids. But it was so fun. I was so glad I came, right? Don't say yes, yes, and no, no. You guys are all older. You're very responsible. Man, be where you're supposed to be. Keep your commitments. The Lord's going to bless that, right? The Apostle Paul knew this, okay? And so he's saying here, hey, listen, I'm not saying yes and no, but the Apostle Paul believed very strongly that he needed to do what the Lord wanted him to do. So he could say, this is my plan right now, right? But I'm not completely committing to this because things may change. So if you don't know whether you're going to be able to keep a commitment, don't make it, right? Say, Lord willing, I don't know if I can do that. People ask me, you know, not so much as before because I'm getting older and I don't like to go to all these different things, but (laughs) people ask me, you know, come to my this, come to my that, whatever. And I usually don't say, oh, I'll be there. I say, well, let me, you know, 
figure out whether I can do it or not. That's why it took me forever to actually, you know, finally say yes, yes, yes uh, to your birthday party. I wanted to make sure that, you know, I wanted to go, but I wanted to make sure I was going to go. And so I didn't want to say yes, get your hopes up and then not show up. I don't like that. I don't. I would rather say, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go and then show up. Then say, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to be there and then not show up, right? That's not the way we should be. Keep your word. All right. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, I'm probably not going to get to that this week, but that's a very important verse. That is why... It is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, or our amen to God. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me that, I, that it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you, stand for, uh, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote to you as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Man, the Apostle Paul is very much intertwined with these people, right? He really loves them. He really, really wants the best for them. And they're just difficult people, right? Do you have people like that in your life? People that you love so much and they're just difficult people. What do you do with them? What do you do about them? They're just, they're there and you love them and you want to be there for them, but they're not always easy to deal with. Hey, that's children, right? Right? That's your kids. Um, And especially kids in our era, guys, man, I got news for you. They're being heavily influenced by the culture and they're being drawn away from Jesus, man. These kids... They don't know Jesus from Adam and Eve, okay? They really don't. Jesus is, you know, uh, a person they've heard of and heard about, and maybe they think of him as a historical figure or whatever. But this idea of a personal relationship with Christ, they're going to have to, each of them, young or old, open their heart to the reality that they can have a relationship with someone that's not standing there in front of them in skin and bone, right? And, yeah, I, I am looking at a generation that is further from Jesus than any generation I've ever seen, right? I've said this to you, and maybe everybody's getting sick of listening to me, but we are in an antichrist culture, not a godless culture, an antichrist culture. The values that these kids are receiving are not just values that are uh, in some way alternate to the word of God. They are values that are opposed to the word of God. And when they embrace those values, it makes them want to resist the preaching of the word. 
And so as grandparents and as parents, it is incumbent upon you to love them and to tell them the truth, right? Uh, a post that I, I put up uh, a day or so ago on Facebook, I said, you know, when your child is going the wrong direction, you are not supposed to be holding their hand. You need to grab their arm and jerk them in the right direction. That's all there is to it. Now, ultimately, they're going to have to make up their own minds. But you and I don't need to be affirming them in these horrible decisions. They're being influenced, okay? There's no two ways about it. They are being influenced, as you and I are being influenced, right? It's interesting that uh, you have... Uh, these people on you know, YouTube and TikTok, largely young people in their 20s or even teens, and they're called what? Influencers. Influencers. Yeah, and what are they influencing people to do? Stupid things. <laughs> Random. Sometimes it's just pointless, mindless, you know, right? I'm an influencer, and you just have dumb videos. What are you influencing people? But sometimes it's, it's blatantly bad, yeah. right? Um, it doesn't even have to be, I'm not even getting into politics here, okay? But it is, politics is where your values meet governing people and making people do what you want them to do. So although I don't like to jump into politics, you and I need to learn to vote. Really do. Because right now, the person that you put in office is not just sitting back and saying, okay, well, I have certain ideas that you may not agree with, but it won't affect you. No, it does affect you. It affects you directly. We all went through the pandemic, right? You do realize that these people want to sit you down in your house and tell you you can't go anywhere. You do realize that right now Biden is thinking about uh, declaring a climate emergency. There's no climate emergency. I'm sorry. This is a way for government to say, you will do what we tell you to do. I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. We got prepped, okay, in advance with the pandemic. Everybody's been prepared to be told that they can't go to work, that they got to sit at home, that their job is not necessary. Church is not necessary. You remember that? Yep. COVID Clay Jenkins. Your church is not necessary. Sit at home, Okay. Governor Nuisance in California, you can't sing. Don't do it because I told you so. Because there's a study over here that says that that might spread COVID. You will do what I tell you to do. You don't have any freedom. These people are going to tell you that it's a climate emergency and you can't leave your house. They're going to tell you that you need to turn your thermostat up above a certain degree. And if you don't, they're just going to cut your electricity. Oh, I know. You think I'm a conspiracy theorist. You watch. Stop voting for these Marxists. Stop voting for these people that lean to the left. They're totalitarians, and they want to tell you what to do. I don't care if they call themselves Democrats or Republicans. The government, I agree with Ronald Reagan, the government needs to get out of our way. Get out of our way. Stop telling us what to do. Jesus can tell me what to do. The government can't tell me what to do. No, they can't. No, they can't. Right? Monkeypox, I'm not wearing a face mask. I'm sorry. Okay? I'm not walking around in a hazmat suit. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be careful. 
That doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen to advice, okay? But the reality is you need to have the kind of relationship with Almighty God where you're obedient to him and you love your fellow man and you do what's right, okay? But the government needs to stay out of our lives, needs to stay out of our business. Um, you know, uh, Peter was put on the, on the spot on several occasions where they told him, you can't preach Jesus. I'm telling you, they will call the preaching of the gospel hate speech. They will. I'm telling you, they will. They'll call it hate speech. If I, if I preach the scripture, if there are certain things that I say and I post on Facebook, Facebook will come and just say, nope, you can't say that. Twitter will come and say, nope, you can't say that. They're already doing this, right? We don't have a big enough reach on YouTube to where they're um, censoring us. But this is why I got the type of uh, streaming. We, we have this uh, streaming um, platform that streams to multiple different places. So right now, I don't know that anybody's watching it. We're on Twitch. Do you know what Twitch is? I mean, there's probably nobody watching us, but it's if video gamers are on Twitch. Okay? So if you're a gamer, they watch each other play games on Twitch. We're on Twitch. We stream to Twitter. You're probably not on Twitter. I tried to get y'all to go to Twitter when it looked like it was going to become a free speech haven, which apparently it's not now. Um, but I got back on Twitter. We're, we're streaming on Twitter right now. We're streaming on YouTube right now. We're streaming on our church's page on Facebook. We're streaming on my personal page on Facebook. It's all happening right now. We are also streaming directly to our website. So even if all these others say, you can't say that, it's going directly to our website. And I believe a couple of Sundays ago, that's where you watched it, Sue, right? You just click, you know, lifewillchurch.com and you'll see there's a little box there where we're streaming. And you can watch this, even if everybody else says no, right? We'll figure something out. If we've got to record it and make it available in some other way, we will. But I'm just telling you, that's the direction that, uh, that the world is going, okay? So um, Paul was responding to accusations that he was insincere and domineering. It appeared that he wasn't keeping a previous promise to visit the Corinthians, was he avoiding them out of fear that he'd been overbearing or would abuse his authority? The apostle had already made one painful visit in chapter 2, verse 1. He said that he had visited them. It was a painful visit, obviously. Listen, it's no fun to tell people that they need to change. I, what I hope, what I always hope is when, I, when I'm up here and I preach so strongly or teach something that is controversial. Each person will take it, evaluate it, and apply it to themselves. If you're sitting there saying, well, is he trying to say something to me? No, but the Holy Spirit might be trying to say something to you. It is very rare that I'm sitting up here teaching and thinking, well, that's going to teach her. Well, that person thinks this way. Well, watch this. I'm going to get up here on stage and just, no. I just teach what the scripture says, okay? And what you find is the Holy Spirit is trying to apply that. And in our era, people don't want to be contradicted. They don't want to be told that what they think or what they do or their attitude or whatever is wrong. And so people don't want to be accountable. So what they do is they just leave. Just go somewhere else. 
And you can find a church that will tell you what you want to hear. Right? Is like it or not, churches are dependent upon the support of their members, right? And donations. Now, if I win the lottery, <laughs> hey, it's up to $1.2 billion. If I win the lottery, it won't matter. Y'all can just decide not to give and do whatever. I'm just going to preach. I'm going to be like, what? You don't pay me, so who cares? I'll pay the bills. <laughs> right? But the reality is, I probably won't, but I'm, I, I don't want to jinx it. Maybe I will. You never know. I want to trust the Lord. <laughs> the Lord doesn't listen to me. I buy a lottery ticket, and I don't even mention one number. And I'm like, really, Lord, really? I mean, come on, right? $1.2 billion. But nonetheless, we are reliant upon the support of members and regular attenders. And if people get in a tizzy, what will usually happen is they curtail their financial support. And then they attend less and less. And then they just go somewhere else. Unless you really make them mad, and then they just pull the plug and go somewhere else. Right? There are six churches within a stone's throw of this building. The way we are right now in our world, people just go where they want to go, and you can find a church that will teach what you, you know, want to hear. So I'm going to do my best. I'm not here to make people mad. I don't like that. I, I'm with the Apostle Paul here. He was like, I didn't want to make another painful visit. I don't want to tell people what to do. I really don't. I really don't. I want you to apply it to yourself. I don't want to have to sit people down like I'm a parent and say, why are you doing this? I, I don't want to do that. And I don't think the Apostle Paul did either. He wanted them to pay attention to what he'd written them and make the adjustments so that when he showed up, then they would have a good, healthy conversation, right? Relationship. That's what he was looking for. So um, all of the events that are being discussed here occurred after the writing of our 1 Corinthians, which, as I've told you before, was actually the second letter he'd written to the Corinthians. We don't have the actual, original 1 Corinthians. Our 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. Okay? Paul's answer to this uh, accusation that he's insincere and domineering um, is that he didn't visit again, at least yet, because he didn't want to inflict or be afflicted with more pain. Essentially, Paul sought to avoid more drama. I'm with Paul. Who wants drama? I don't. I wish everybody would just love everybody and behave. <laughs> Amen? Amen? I wish people would just, you know, come to church and say, yeah, well, the pastor said something I didn't like, but it's all good, you know. I'm here to love Jesus. Rather than whining and moaning and groaning and complaining and, you know, throwing up, you know, two sides to this issue and that issue. and But that's our world, right? You got the Democrats and the Republicans, you got the conservatives and you got the, the left and, you know, everybody jumps on a bandwagon and, you know, they've got to be pro or anti everything. We can't just love each other. It's nonsense, right? Um, so he didn't want more drama. He wanted his visit to be positive, not punitive. He wanted to rejoice with them to offer love and forgiveness this would, uh, this would not happen so long as there were uncooperative, rebellious, unrepentant people in the community. So Paul waited and went elsewhere to minister. Minister? Minister. All right? So rather than come and try to dominate them, tell them what to do and what to think, he said, I've already told you. 
You know what's right. I've written to you. Now just do what's right. And if you don't, you don't. Okay? So what's the lesson for us? One important lesson is people need space to make their own decisions. Amen? Amen. Okay? This idea that you've got you, you, you to push people around and ride up on them and tell them what to do, I, again, I don't like that. Okay? Tell people the truth and then give them space to make their own decisions. God grants each of us freedom. God gives you the freedom to make up your own mind. You realize that's why there's a hell, right? Exactly. There's a hell because God's not going to force you to be with him forever in heaven. There's a place of ultimate destruction. So hell is not God being a big meaning. Oh, you don't agree with me, huh? Well, I'm going to burn you forever. No. Hell is, this is what you make of yourself when you're apart from me. Okay? And so that's what happens. So if you're in a relationship, you got to trust the other person. Don't automatically assume the worst. If she hasn't called or texted in the last hour, it doesn't mean she's cheating on you. If you can trust them, why are you in? If you cannot trust them, why are you in the relationship? This is applying it to a relationship. Give them space, right? There are these, these sick, suffocating relationships. And these days, it's not just a male-female relationship. There's, there's so much... Uh, change and transformation in the way people understand intimacy, that this can be a male-male relationship. This can be a female-female relationship. The point is, you can have a very close same-sex friend and still treat them the same way a boyfriend or girlfriend treat one another if it's a sick relationship. Either way, even if there's not anything, quote-unquote, sexual involved, there is a there can be a suffocating um, closeness there where you have to have constant contact with this person. You're afraid of what they're doing or what they're saying or what they're thinking apart from you. That's just a lack of trust, right? That's just a sickness. Um, you suffocate a friend this way. You, su- you can even, even a husband and a wife, there's gotta be, there's gotta be, um, trust there. Okay. If every time that person is not with you, you think they're cheating on you, gosh, you don't have a whole lot of trust for that person, right? Um, give him space to have his own friends. You don't have to be together every free waking moment. When you give each other space, the relationship will mature and improve. If your partner is cheating, it's a heart problem, and it would, have, would not have been solved by keeping constant watch over them. Listen, if their heart's already belonging to somebody else, you can try to watch over them, and they're just going to try to sneak away anyway, okay? It's not going to help. In fact, that kind of relationship breeds duplicity. It breeds lying, okay? You're like, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to monitor you, and you need to text me, and I need to know where you are and whatever. Especially, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of ladies in the room, especially if it's a male, if they're cheating on you, it's a game, they're going to find ways to dance around that. So you think that you're moving in closer and keeping them closer. Men are inherently competitive and gamers. Okay? I'm telling you, far more males play video games than females. There are plenty of females that play video games, don't get me wrong, but far more males play video games. And they play competitive video games. Right? Video games where you've you got to beat somebody, shoot somebody, whatever. 
Males are competitive by nature. They love the game. You're not helping yourself or them by riding up on them 24 hours a day and making them make that contact. You ladies do have an intuition. It's native to, to most women, if not all women. And if there's a problem, try to talk with him about it. If he doesn't want to talk about it, you got to do what you got to do. Okay? If you can't trust somebody, you can't be in a close relationship with them. Right? Um, applying this to when you're in a position of authority. It's important to seek to understand and maintain sensitivity to those that are under your leadership. Again, I'm the pastor of this church. I'm aware of all sorts of things that are going on, but I don't go confront everybody. What I hope is that they'll come talk to me. Somebody's got a problem. I hope they'll come talk to me. You know what I find? Most of the time, they don't. They just have a problem until they just decide to leave. And that's sad. If you have a problem, come talk to me. I'm really not an ogre, right? I do really, I actually do listen, okay? I may not agree with you, or you may be able to give me a side that I don't realize or recognize or understand. I may be able to make changes, but I most certainly can't do that if the only time you talk to me is when it comes to the point where you're like, oh yeah, by the way, we're leaving. I don't even try to convince people to stay anymore. If they've already gotten to that place where they tell me about that, they've already decided. Their heart's already somewhere else. So I don't get grumpy and domineering and try, no, no, you can't. And what? And what are we going to do? And no, people are going to do what they're going to do. Right? And I'm going to love them regardless. Um, So if you're in a position of leadership, you know, even if you're a teacher in a classroom or, you know, a principal like Pastor Craig is, um, there are certain rules that you have to you know, make those kids adhere to, but you've got to get them freedom. I I know, you know, the majority of you in here um, are or have been parents and you realize that you've just got to give kids space. You can't watch every single behavior. You've got to figure out the battles you can fight and the ones that you're not even going to fight, right? The The worst thing you can do is be all or nothing where you're trying to control them every moment of the day and then they wear you out and you're just like, whatever, go do what you want to do then, right? No, you just got to learn which battles to, to fight. You know, pick your battles and say, this is important. The kid's doing what I don't want them to do. They may get hurt doing it, but they're not going to get hurt too bad. I'm just going to have to say, this is important. This is not as important. This is not important at all. The Lord will give you the wisdom because he gave you the kids, all right? I do. I I believe that the Lord's given you everything you need to raise those kids, even though you may be pulling your hair out at times and saying, I have no idea how to raise this kid or these kids. Um, You got to allow a child to make mistakes and then let them deal with the consequences. You really do. You just got to, as they get older, right? When they're younger, you're, you're going to watch over them more and more, right? Can't let the kid run across the street and get run over by a car, okay? But as they get older, you realize, okay, they're doing some things that I don't like, and I don't think that this is good. And you can say that to them, but just like the boyfriend-girlfriend situation that I uh, iterated earlier, um, if you're constantly watching over every move, it's better if you know what they're doing and where they're going wrong and the mistakes they're making, but you choose to step in when it is dangerous, when it is important, okay? 
And there are times when you're just like, okay, you're going to fall and you're going to skin your chin or your knees or your elbows, but you're just going to have to do that because I can't always be there to hold your hand and keep you from falling, especially if you're constantly twisting your arm to get away from me, right? Um, I've given this example before, but the last exhausting teenagers that I had a relationship with in this church, um, yeah, they were all three very difficult, okay? It didn't start out that way, but, you know, as they got to middle school and pushed deeper and deeper into middle school and then early high school, they got more and more difficult to deal with. All three of them shoplifted at one point, and I caught them. One of them, I didn't know until sometime later, but I highly suspected. The last one that I'm talking about right now didn't actually shoplift. He just stole something from somebody at the rock, something pretty expensive. Now, in case you didn't know, here's a tactic that um, criminals use. If they're stealing something that is valuable, it is unlikely, if they're smart, worldly-wise, that they're going to have it on their person. This is what they do. They're going to hide it somewhere else. Then they're going to come back later and get it. Because, so in this case, it was a cell phone. Now, people can have cheap cell phones or expensive cell phones. You know how that goes, right? Um, This was a, a young man at The Rock that was leading a program, and he was doing the program in one of the courts there, and his phone was charging outside. And I had taken this group of boys, and we had left, but there was a uh, tornado warning. So we're not even a mile away from the rock. I turned around and came back. And he came out of the court, and he's like, hey, man, this phone's gone. It's got to be one of your guys. And I'm like, it probably was. So I confronted him. No, no, Pastor D. No, 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 Pastor D. We didn't do that. No, no, no. We didn't do that. Right? And so here's this guy. He doesn't make a lot of money. And he's out like a six or $700 phone, okay? Um, it was, I don't know how long later, but there, was, there were a pile of clothes at the end of the court hallway that I guess had been given uh, to be given away, like clothing closet. And it was in that pile of clothes. One of these kids, and I didn't know which one it was, had taken the phone, unplugged it, and hidden it in that pile of clothes, Well, thankfully, you know, he found it and got back to him. It was six months or a year later I finally got that kid to confess to me that he had done that. Now, the other two um, shoplifted from uh, two different stores, okay? One of them stole a pair of socks or a couple of package of socks, right? These socks, okay, These kids are all going to schools where they wear uniforms. So the only way they can distinguish themselves is by wearing these fancy socks. All right. And Nike has just got a stranglehold on everybody. You know, they just, they all think they have to have Nike. So these are these little Nike socks, right, that they had. And uh, I can't remember how I found out about it, but I found out that he 
had shoplifted these socks. And so I did what I always did. I said, we're going back to the store and you're going to give it back to the manager. Now, what you find is um, actually these days they don't even prosecute if they see you walk out the door, okay? But back then and in days previously, um, if they don't catch you, they don't prosecute. Now, I don't tell these kids this. I'm like, no, you're going to take this back and you're going to hand it to them and you're going to apologize or I'm going to tell your dad. I want you to tell your dad. That's what I told them, okay? I'm not going to go tattle and tell your dad. We're going to take this back. You're going to hand it back to the manager. You're going to apologize and you're going to tell your dad. So the only threat I had was I'm going to tell your dad if you don't do this. So, you know, the kid did it. Didn't get prosecuted, right? I'm trying to give them space to do what's right. The other kid stole a packet of condoms. And yes, I did make him bring those back and hand them to the manager and apologize. Absolutely. Because he stole something, right? That's the point. So what am I trying to say? Um, there's this balance there, okay? If a kid does something that is a danger to themselves or someone else, then, you know, confidentiality is gone, I'm telling the parent, right? In this situation, I want the kid to learn to do what's right. And then I want them to confess to their parent. If I immediately go and tattle to the parent, they're never going to have confidence in me again. If I let them get away with it, then basically all I'm doing is enabling bad behavior. Do you understand where I stand with this issue? Okay. This is what I'm trying to do. Now, I really don't have relationships with uh, teenagers much anymore, uh, but that's, I did for a long time. And I get this going all the way back to when I was the program manager of a foster care group home. I had kids that were stealing stuff on a regular basis, okay? And we did exactly what I just told you. We would bring them back to the store. They would have to turn in what they stole and apologize to the manager and deal with the consequences. Even back then, if the manager or whoever didn't catch them, you know, nothing more happened. Now, we would give them consequences for having stolen something, okay? But nonetheless, what I'm trying to say is you've got to give people room to make the right decisions, if that makes sense. If you just push them around and tell them what they have to do, they're just going to get away with what they get away with, okay? All right. So those are examples. Let's look at uh, these verses 18 through 22 very quickly. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen, and amen means that's true, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has appointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So I'm going to talk about this at more length next week. But this is where the Apostle Paul helps us to understand that we connect to all of the promises of God through Christ. This is why when we go back into the Old Testament and I relate to you promises like those that were made to Abraham, Okay, I will 
uh, bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing to all people. Um, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Why can I offer those promises to you and I that were made to Abraham? Because we're connected to that through Christ, right? So that's why my hope is if the Lord keeps me in the Old Testament the way he has and we continue to walk through the holy history, that you guys will grab a hold of those promises and say, no, I'm one of God's people. That's for me. All of the promises are yes in him, okay? Um, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Who's him? Jesus. The question you need to ask yourself is, am I in him? If you are in him, then those promises are yes for you. They're not no for you, okay? I can look at myself and say, I don't even qualify to be sitting here talking to you right now and be teaching right now, okay? My mind's all over the place, right? I'm making all sorts of mistakes throughout the day. I'm getting, you know, angry and lustful and foolish in all these different ways. And I have to reel myself back in. And I have to say, no, that's not me. No matter what my flesh likes or wants or hates or whatever, that's not me. I am seen in Christ. I am worthy in Christ. I am wearing the righteousness of Christ. Because if I'm not, I'm in trouble. We're all in trouble. If you're relying on your own righteousness to get through, well, you're not. As in, you're not going to get through. Because none of us are righteous enough. But in Christ, we have the righteousness of God he makes us just, and he puts us in the position that we can be, like his son, inheritors of all the promises. Amen? All right. So we'll look at that uh, passage, uh, verses 18 through 22, in a little bit more detail next week. God bless you guys for joining us online.